0: But now when you can find your, your peeps who also believe that the world is flat and it happened to be 100,000 of them, you just go, well, we, you know, seriously, I am not mad. Look at all these people. They can't all be mad, but they can.
1: This is Defender Radio. Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers. It's contest time. Getting reviews on the Apple Podcasts app, iTunes, and other locations where you listen to the show goes a long way in helping new people find Defender radio, hear the messages from guests, and ultimately, help the animals. We're giving away a defender radio tea this week, and maybe a few other things in coming weeks. All you have to do to enter now and in the future is leave a review on your preferred podcast playing location. Send me a screenshot through social media or at michael at furbears.com and include your phone number and address. I'll randomly select a winner from those who submit a screenshot at the end of the week and announce the winner on next week's show. This contest is open to all listeners in Canada and the continental US. Science literacy is growing more important by the day particularly for advocates looking to make change in the lives of animals and the environment. But between complex academic papers, bureaucrats and others who don't fully explain theories or provide citations, and the world of instant-access social media, it isn't always easy to be on the side of fact. That's why the job of the science communicator is becoming vital. And that's why I wanted to talk to the best science communicator I know, Dr. Anna Zachriesen. Dr. Anna's Imaginarium is a brilliant collection of podcasts, social media groups, and videos, as well as a new business, that allows Anna to discuss all sorts of topics and issues related to science. With her PhD in biology and love of talking about science, she was the perfect person to join Defender Radio and explore what science literacy is, why social media could be making it harder to think critically, and how we can all do better as advocates— content creators scientists and content consumers so let's start uh let's talk a bit about who you are and what a science communicator is uh i feel like that's where we need to get that out of the way first before we start getting into some of these various subjects we're going to delve in and out of so what do you do what is a science communicator what's going on
0: Well, a science communicator can be many different things, I think. I mean, it really depends on your target group. Um, There are some excellent science communicators out there who are communicating to other scientists. And that's a completely different type of communication strategy that is needed than, for example, if you're communicating with kids or the general public. And also depending on what your motives are. I mean, there are science communicators who have really... Marketing motives um, behind I mean they can they can still be extremely good science communicator and communicate really important and very interesting things But their end motive uh, the motive is to sell something or to to get traffic to a site or something um, So that's one thing and then there are people who are doing it as a hobby thing on the side uh, and Have different motives basically uh, and then yeah well, so <laughs> For me, um, I really love communicating with the general public because there's nothing better for me to just see a person suddenly light up and just become really interested in that really, really boring subject, (laughs) chemistry or biology, that they all say like, oh, I had a teacher and she was so boring. And then have that person to write you emails for weeks afterwards, just asking for another book and another tip and another YouTube video or something like that. That is really like science communication was important to me personally, but that's as I said, can really vary from person to person.
1: And I guess the the obvious next question is, what is science literacy? Uh, and I think that sort of introduces us a bit more into what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, it's a term that is being used more frequently, I would say, but I feel isn't necessarily well-defined in the public sphere. So how would you define science literacy?
0: Science literacy. Well, um, I'd actually stretch it so far and just say that science literacy is defined by if you can think critically or not. And I know there's a lot of people who don't agree with me on that, but I think that um, I find That people who think critically and have learned critical thinking, even though they might not have studied natural sciences in any type of uh, in in any form, they still have an easy time to grasp new topics or subjects. So you know, I can I've I've met people who really sort of dropped out of school, you know, in high school, and uh, but they still were extremely good at critical thinking. So they still keep on asking questions and they just weren't satisfied by just a sort of fussy answer. And, and suddenly, and, and those are the people who are most likely to just light up and just go, Whoa, this is so cool. And so, so I, I think that, that's how I would define it. But I know there's a lot of people who would not agree and they would say that the literacy means to actually have the actual basic knowledge of a certain topic. For example, understanding and knowing what DNA is and, and so on and so forth. Or maybe be able to explain a genetic um, editing technique or something like that. But yeah, it depends also, I think. But that's my definition.
1: And we'll, we'll move into an easy question for you. Uh, do you think the internet, and specifically social media, have helped or hurt our ability to talk about science, science literacy, uh, policy related to science, etc.? As I said, it's a nice, easy one for you to
0: solve. So. <laughs> An easy question, yeah, right. Well, it's really hard to know because the thing is, before we were really stuck in our echo chambers, and now we're really stuck in our echo chambers. So, <laughs> so yeah, well, it's hard to know. The only, The only thing is that... Conspiracy um, theories—they can spread faster now, and also numbers matter. So if you have misinformation, which is spreading very fast over social media, has been shown in this uh, uh, this study that was recently published, particularly of twi- Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have a very fast spread of misinformation. I think that because you have these large numbers of people believing in misinformation on social media, that can be really, um, that worries me. Because if you see 100,000 people supporting an issue, you just go, well, if that many people (laughs) supporting this or believing this, it must be true. Mm And that was probably not the case before when you were just sitting there alone in the lunchroom at your working place going, well, guys, I think the world is flat. And then everyone turns around and laughs at you. Uh, but now when you can find your um, your peeps who also believe <laughs> that the world is flat and it happened to be 100,000 of them, you just go, well, we, you know, seriously, I am not mad. Look at all these people. They can't all be mad, mm. but they can. I <laughs> <They're> just, <laughs> just aggregated in one place. So, yeah.
1: So it's it is I I struggle with it personally. My background is journalism, and I love the internet because we have this the sudden access to everything. And I hate the internet because we have the sudden access to everything and no filters.
0: <laughs> yep, exactly. There's like um, there's no. Uh... Like uh, you have films, at least, you know, I remember walking to the DVD uh, like rental place when I was a kid and they were like, are you 15? And you're like, yes, I am. And uh, pulled out like uh, something that (laughs) was like uh, pretending to be a ID card, but we don't have any control over, over internet basically at all. It's like uh, completely unfiltered uh, information. And uh yeah, it is really a problem, I think. Um, but how to filter that without people screaming censorship yeah. uh is also hard. Yeah, but, that's that's uh,
1: where we get into a, a huge ethical debate, uh <laughs> which I frankly don't know that there's a solution to. Mm. Um and uh, speaking of debates, one thing I see a lot, and this is, I see it a lot in the world of wildlife research and science and biology, ecology, and so on. And that's, you'll have government officials or advocates on both sides of an argument will wave what I call the magic science wand. Uh, they say, oh, well, the science says this.
0: and then, I knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> yeah. And,
1: and it's just, okay, well, that's the end of the conversation. And, uh, you know, two recent examples. One is a uh, scientist in Alberta uh, one of our uh, western provinces, saying that grizzly bears can't be rehabilitated, but then offered no evidence of this whatsoever. Mm. Um, another very, very common one is that if we don't cull this animal, they'll overpopulate, and then the zombie apocalypse will come. Uh, I, I think that <laughs> particularly for people coming from the scientific community, <laughs> the citations and references would be standard. Why do you think that falls so flat sometimes?
0: Well, um I have many enormous problems with the scientific community and how things are published and the whole system how it's set up. And as with all uh professions, um there are people who are better at it and worse at it. Um so when you publish something, you know, there are certain things that you have to follow, you know, you need to have your references, it can't be plagiarism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um okay, I'm not talking about the predatory journals now because they work under completely yep, different yeah. uh, different rules. Um so you have you have this setup and um well when it comes to communicating with the public um or with um people who are outside of this peer reviewed academic world, other rules apply. So many times um, I feel there is a small arrogance as well from scientists just um, thinking, okay, well, I'm I'm right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't need to sort of add any references or make an effort in communicating this properly. This is rare. Um, the um, experience I have from Sweden when it comes to ecology, uh, the colleagues that I've been working with there have been extremely good when they communicate with the public stakeholders, always, always involved, Um, even meetings with the stakeholders between scientists, um, politicians, people living in the areas that are affected. And uh, those projects have also been extremely successful. So if you really need sustainable change to, to happen, you need to involve everyone and you need to be completely eye to eye honest with everyone and have an open conversation. So, but I have seen from other places these reports where somebody is just telling people mm-hmm. things and and that I think is an old way of communicating that just isn't right. And sometimes if you have somebody who might not be very thoughtful either, you might end up with reports or um, things like that, that is basically, uh, it's just a statement and not, and not even backed up.
1: Yeah, and then, of course, once it hits the media, uh, an opinion becomes fact.
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh,
1: And there was a... I actually... So I wrote down some (laughs) of the words in this, and I'm probably going to pronounce them wrong, so please correct me. But a few (laughs) (laughs) years ago, uh, the media took research and extrapolated it just to a level of ridiculousness that I don't think has been seen since. Mm. And there was a study that showed, and you probably know this one, uh, when rats were given resveratrol... Uh, physiological changes were found that were similar to those after an hour of exercise. And because resveratrol is found in wine, the headlines became (laughs) that a glass of wine is the same as an hour in the gym.
0: Of course, it is. What are you talking about? I am completely supporting this. There's nothing wrong with the statement. There will never be anything wrong with the statement. Right, of discussion. Right. Oh, listen, I've got a PhD in biology, so I'm right, right? Okay. I'm just going to go and have a glass of wine now.
1: <laughs> but I mean, it, it was remarkable how quickly this spread. And yeah. even now, if you look up red wine and gym, those. <laughs> incorrect headlines are still all over the place and you have to dig to find the original study and the follow-up from the author saying I have no idea what happened
0: yeah so, I mean this is a common common story I've seen it happen so many times it's unbelievable so if you have a, it's like particular things people want to believe those mm-hmm. are really really easy to to um, to manipulate like that uh, for for a um, media outlet, so if you have somebody that you know, like weight loss or gym or anything that's really directly related to their life, I mean things that, for example, if they found a specific gene in in a worm that will make it uh, wiggle a bit faster or something like that, yeah. it won't really sort of affect people's lives directly in that way. So they won't it won't spin like that. But anything that has to do with you know health or yeah. Or just uh, your general life. I mean, that that was been, I mean, but, but look at this. You have these ridiculous ads of like lose uh, four kilos of belly fat in two days or, uh, you know, uh, do this uh, two minutes of exercise per day for a week and you'll be uh, like beach ready and eight mm-hmm. kilos lighter. And everyone knows this is bullshit everyone knows and still these are successful ads year in and year out and they never go away Mm -hmm. so because people want to believe you know and if you have people wanting to believe um, I mean even I thought it sounded like a great idea this (laughs) (laughs) if you have that belief you know then then uh, yeah it's easy to put a spin on things very easy when you've done a couple of videos on
1: things like urban legends uh in science mm. as i would say a science communicator um what is the best way for people in the media from the new york times down to a podcast like mine and readers to sort of take the information they're getting uh and i i don't want to use the 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 bullshit detector because everyone's detector is set a little differently uh but What are some of the things we can do when we see a headline like this, or we see a reference to a study uh, where they say, well, a 10% increase. And then when you actually read the study, it's like a, an actual change of, you know, one out of Um, 1000. So how do we, how do we break that down to make it safe to consume science? Mm. I would say.
0: Okay. So I have like just one, one really easy tip. Does it sound too good to be true? That's then it a, probably is Yeah. it's <laughs> like it's extremely unlikely i read something and i doubt it and it turns out to actually be true mm-hmm. I, I don't think i've ever experienced that actually in, in in every case if it sounds too good to be true it is too good to be true um or well, there is at least a catch somewhere so um that's one thing that I would absolutely just, uh, and, and also if I get extremely happy or extremely angry over of a an, of an headline, if I feel any of those two responses from a headline, the likelihood is very large that I'm being manipulated in some way. And it also means that it's either going, f- f- um, it's working for my, uh, my own biases, my echo chamber or against it, which means that I'm reacting very, very strongly, aggressively, even though uh, even though they, it might be right. So, those are two feelings that I really um, check in myself as well when I read things. Am I feeling posit- very positive or very negative? Warning flag.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <This> is... <laughs> well, and then once we've done that, how do we break out of the echo tra- chamber? I guess that's that's sort of ultimately what it is. And I see this a lot because I'm very clearly on a side in an ongoing argument about use of wildlife, uh, consumptive mm-hmm. use of wildlife. And I know that I am frequently showing information that will support my belief. Uh, And again, with a background in news, with a a general understanding of the sciences, I still get caught saying, oh, well, look at this one study. And, you know, when I sit down later and think it over and I say, yeah, you know, it's a small sample size. It hasn't been repeated yet. On and on and on. But how do we break out of the echo chamber, do you think? Or can we in the age of social media? (laughs)
0: that is really really hard um because often if you ask the questions that you want to ask you often get showered in aggression mm-hmm. so even though i take one example um i was interested genuinely interested in some um vaccines and about uh i mean i'm i'm really sort of working for more vaccine knowledge and um Hoping that the vaccination levels increase, because I'm really not um, really uh, interested in having epidemics uh, returning mm. all diseases. So, but I also feel like you know it's my responsibility then to to really get all the facts and also understanding the actual risk levels, because uh, that's something I can't just stand there and shout it's all good uh, yeah. and I'll, not actually knowing that it's all good. So, and I have been spending some time and asking honest questions in a few, few groups. I know I, of course, I've been searching for peer reviewed studies as well to actually get, get some meat on the bones from, from that side, but I thought it was interesting to just have a look how people are thinking and stuff like that, just by asking a question um you could basically just receive threats <laughs> it's like if it happens to sound like you are actually questioning their 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 views but i've seen that on science sites as well so i'm not saying that this is a one sided thing it just happens uh, both ways so so even if you are curious and you want to leave your echo chamber uh, you still have questions that you want to have answered, I presume. And if you ask those questions, it can be very, very hard because you might not get let into other echo chambers. That's the problem because they don't want to be asked things either. Yeah. And uh, this is hard.
1: Yeah. And there's been a lot of uh, bits and pieces coming out about things like the um, the rebound effect. Or sorry, no, I don't think that's it. Backfire.
0: Backfire. Backfire. Yes, yes, that's yes. the
1: one. Um, yeah. And that's fascinated me, especially <laughs> as an a professional advocate and is really informing how I approach writing certain things and so on because like it's it's remarkable that and I think it was actually probably vaccines that they were talking about or pharmaceuticals in one study when people Mm -hmm. were given evidence that contradicted their beliefs they dug in more on their beliefs yes
0: yes yes Uh, like that. But that. it also depends a bit how you how you approach them i think i i, I can't really really remember the, the study in detail but i but i have some vague memories of that they only tested a few ways of communicating and mm-hmm. not really sort of changing that so so i think that if you are um on social media it can be very hard but if you meet a person um, one-to-one, I think that you have a fair chance of actually, um, by asking them questions. Yes. You no, know, how did you, how did you get to this point? And you know, what made you, uh, become a believer in this and, you know, and just keep on asking and asking and asking. And eventually they often c- can get a little bit irritated, but, um, they, uh, sometimes, uh, go home, sleep over it a bit and then ask more questions.
1: Yeah. Uh, And speaking of getting irritated a bit, uh, you've spoken out against the anti-vaxxer (laughs) movements. That's a good segue, right? Uh, Say again? That was a good segue, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, And I'm going to, before I ask the question, I'm going to preface it that I have someone with an autoimmune disorder in my family. So I am very, very grateful for professionals like you. Uh, who do speak out against that because it is it literally puts a family member's life at risk for me.
0: Yes, when yes. people
1: don't take this seriously. So when we mm. see measles outbreak in this city, it's like, well, guess where we're not going this year uh, yeah. because it's that serious.
0: Yeah uh, it is. So, yeah. thank you very much.
1: <laughs> so you you will sometimes gently mock uh, homeopathy. Uh, when it's treated as science,
0: uh, yeah. I mean, sometimes I got to do things for my own psychological health as well. You know, I try to like keep calm and do like nice communication the whole time. But you know, homeopathy—that that's sort of—that's yep. I can't stop laughing.
1: <laughs> it's too funny. Um, so, even though it's only sometimes that you gently mock, um, you do get. A, an extreme response. And I've seen uh, I've I saw you speaking about one of these in a video. And I think you were actually talking about it at a skeptics conference you were at. Um, I'm trying to remember a- all the bits and pieces. And it was yeah. people talking about your looks, your professionalism and credentials, <laughs> and actual physical threats. So yeah. like the first time this happened, how did you respond to it? And how do you manage it now?
0: Well, the first time I responded to it, uh, I saw it, I I thought, oh, whoa, that escalated quickly. (laughs) Uh, And then I I thought, okay, this is really odd, you know, because I I don't know, I came from a sort of really naive echo chamber, I think as well for on on Facebook, where sort of people uh, discussed sort of uh, nicely and respecting each other. But then when I started the page, I realized that there's a whole world of like, fabulous insults out there that I wasn't aware of. Um, but, uh, yeah, I like the only time that I have gotten really pissed off is when my family has been involved in threats, um, which has happened. But, um, I mean, having some random dude on the internet, just calling me a fucking whore or screw you attention whore. was one. Yeah. (laughs) And dress, I dress like a prostitute, you know, my lip my lipstick is wrong i have an adam's apple apparently as well i uh etc cetera, etc cetera. and right now i just collect them and i think that they're like um i often as soon as i get something i put it out on I, I remove the name and i publish it on my page like within seconds of getting it uh so it's actually been really really quiet since i started doing that <laughs> it's like, you know i got a few like i think six months ago and then i you know i just put them straight out and then it was quiet so, yep. so I'm happy. Yeah, but now I just realized that I'm on uh, a target list for um, the anti-vaccine movement. There's a there's a list uh, circulating apparently right now. This is just so ridiculous. Um, and because I've been speaking for vaccines, I am on that list. So I'm expecting new things to come in soon. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we'll see. We'll see what they say. Anyway,
1: I guess it's it's taking away the power. Is sort of. The uh, mm. the action that's happening there. Um,
0: yeah. I suppose, yeah. <laughs> no, I have a, I
1: have a question from someone on a Discord from another show I'm on, uh, who is actually a, a researcher as well as a scientist, and mm-hmm. she said that the public has a skewed view of what a scientist is, what an experiment is, how long it takes for results, how predictions really work. Um, and on the flip side, scientists have to show they are relatable, that they are people too, that share some of the same experiences. Uh, Do you think that this is a shared responsibility for science to become more accessible to the public?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, I think the most important thing is to not separate kids out of school too quickly and have like a small group learning science and the rest not, but to sort of... um, have critical thinking as a part of the curriculum irrespective of uh, what topic they learn and then when they grow up they will probably be more <laughs> adept into understanding science and appreciating science as well and from the scientist perspective i think it's extremely important that scientists actually communicate outwards um i understand why it can be very hard i mean i i've been working in research myself. I know how much you work, what ridiculous hours you put in for so little money. So to also have that expectation that when you work like that, like when you when you sleep in a lab on a, on a in a sleeping bag just to be able to take your samples, to also then go out and be this wonderful communicator, it's really tough. Mm-hmm. So um, I completely understand that, but I think that there's a lot of institutes that could actually improve their media centers uh, a lot. I mean, Jesus Christ, I've seen like some uh, releases from media centers that weren't even search engine optimized, so they, they weren't, I mean, and, and really poorly written and uh, just basically misunderstanding served on a, on a silver platter. Um so, I think that there should be better communication between the scientists and the media centers to actually have like uh i don't know workshops together maybe once a year just to meet up and be become like uh first name basis on on mm-hmm. on that with them so that you can actually, you know, what what possibilities there are to communicate your science, and I think that's also for, for particularly for the young scientists to have that feeling of that you know this is actually of interest for the public. I think that could be a very good and motivating thing as well. So, but uh, the academic system is old and slow and needs uh, revamping from the bottom up. So <laughs> I, I I don't really know how to solve this, but um, better communication has to happen.
1: I wanted to um ask you about uh, endometriosis uh, endo- mm. uh are, are you comfortable
0: talking about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So you you have spoken about your life with endometriosis. I think I said it right yes. that time. Yes, endometriosis, yes. Endometriosis. Um I am just a parrot, so I should really get people to say <laughs> things for me ahead of time. Uh and you you spoke at one time about how life with it has informed your opinion on people that may be looking for miracle cures or traditional mm. medicine. Uh, are you able to share that? Uh, I, it's almost called a revelation, it seems, that you had. Uh, just sort of giving you a different bit of insight.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing is, I, I often see people getting very, very angry with, uh, with people searching for alternative treatments and so on. But I think it's very important to understand their personal backgrounds. Um, I was diagnosed with endometriosis, uh, 2005, but then I had already gone 10 years with very severe pains in my stomach. Um, it's very common that women with this illness are, have to wait for about 10 years before they are actually diagnosed. Um, which is a shame. And I hope that that will change. Um, but what happens when you live with chronic pain is that you become desperate. Um, you, there's a lot of pain medications that you can take, uh, but there's only so much you want to take because, uh, obviously if you over- take a lot of ibuprofen every day, eventually your kidneys will give in. Or if you, I mean, there are stronger medications that, that I have never taken at all because, uh, because of worries that, you know, what happens if you get addicted and so on. So, but, <clears throat> um, I've had this, is my, just my fourth surgery I had three weeks ago now. So, um next one will be even even bigger um but you have a lot of pain and you have a lot of other problems you're extremely tired sometimes and so on uh so what happens when you have a chronic illness um you basically don't get diagnosed Uh, doctors they don't believe you um your extreme pain, you even get sent to a psychologist because psychosomatic disturb (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, uh, which basically wasn't the case, uh, where they discovered when I had my emergency surgery, but you get to the point. Um, there are two things here that I would like to, to say, and this is the first thing is that you are desperate. So, and you know, you can never be cured. It's never going to happen. So you're going to have to live with this. So in order to feel that you got some sort of control, over your life and over pain and so on, you might start looking for alternative treatments. And I don't even have a problem with people doing this. I've done this myself, even knowing that I was looking for placebo. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but some rituals and, you know, even if you go for massages, I don't want to call that an alternative treatment, but, um, acupuncture, whatever, you know, just getting attention from a person that listens to you and understands, or, you know, at least pretends to understand, um, it does a lot good for your psyche. Instead of having a doctor telling you, okay, we've got five minutes, okay, you've got endometriosis. Do you want to have this really, really heavy hormonal treatment that's going to put you in a, in a, in a synthetic um, uh, menopause and make you get depression? Um, if you say no, then just go, so why are you here? So <laughs> yeah. that can be really harsh. So if you have suddenly an acupuncturist who takes an hour and you know calms you down and say everything's going to be good and all that, it's understandable. It's completely understandable. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't understand the problem with the ethics of people lying. I've had alternative people, treatment people, telling me that they will cure my endometriosis. And this is where my patient stops. Mm-hmm. Because that is not true. That is complete and utter bullshit. So, um, But I hope that the sort of caring part of the alt crowd... Could be brought into medicine in a better way, but how to finance that? I have no idea. Yeah. But I think that this is where we have a problem.
1: I, that was a very heavy story. Um, <laughs> it brought me down, and I feel bad Sorry. now. No, it's okay. No, no, it's it's a very important story, and it's it's. I'm very thankful that you shared it. It's just very like I need to sit and let that sink in now. Um, but we will push forward. Uh, I have two more questions I wanted to go over with you. One, I can't remember now. Um, so <laughs> you, you have your Dr. Anna's Imaginarium channels. Uh, you do know, yes. podcast videos, Facebook. What was what was your inspiration to do that? Because it's I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you, you bring in a lot of good information. You do poke the bear from time to time,
0: <laughs> uh,
1: as any good scientist should. What was the inspiration for you to start this outward venture
0: so do you want do you want a? do you want a nice story or do you want the true story <laughs> okay.
1: the one the, the, that has more adventure how about that okay
0: the nice story was that i wanted to spread science all over the world and make the world a happy place the true story however <laughs> is that um after my phd finished I was stuck in Sweden. I was in the middle of a divorce. My kid was in, in Germany. I I could not go back to Germany without losing my uh, unemployment money because I still, because I was basically, uh, yeah, switching between countries. So I wasn't able to apply for jobs in Germany without having all the permissions. So I was stuck in Sweden for two months and, um, couldn't leave the country basically. And, um. It was a terrible time. I had zero money and zero um, future perspectives and and, uh, also uh, was separated from my child. So in order to keep my sanity, I set up a rule. Uh, I started the platform. I set up a rule that I get up in the morning and I write one article per day. And starting at seven a m every morning, I got up and wrote one article and these articles are not on the site anymore because they were really crap <laughs> but but that's how it started and then it suddenly just started making really f- much fun and it started growing and then I did it on the side from my job for um for two years um three years <laughs> oh shit three years yeah and uh, and then I, yeah, I will start my own company now, um, the 1st of June. So this is the way it went, but it just really started as a psychological safety net for myself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next time you tell the story, you should throw in like a tiger chasing you down the streets and you oh, ran yeah, into a store <laughs> called the Imaginarium and yeah. it inspires you to do more for the world. I mean, that you know, your story's good. I'm just giving you some notes. <laughs>
0: Good, good. Uh, yeah, uh, I'll definitely introduce the tiger in my next uh, uh, interview. Excellent. Absolutely.
1: Uh, one of those Swedish tigers. Now, <laughs> let's plug the company. Uh, we'll do that. And then I'll ask the final question. So your new company is?
0: Uh, is basically Dr. Anna's Imaginarium. And I will do um, a lot of biological consulting. I have some, some, uh, projects on that already. And, um, I'm doing a lot of performances as well together with my, uh, lovely husband to be, um, we're going to get married soon, um, who is an opera singer. So I love working with artists because I think that, uh, you know, by, with, uh, with music, um, you can reach people emotionally, uh, in just a few tones, you know, and you got them hooked and then serving science by stealth, uh, I think is extremely fun. So we also do a lot like fakir shows as well. So we have a lot of like really sort of unconventional ways of communicating science. We did, uh, or um, with actually body suspension with, with hooks and everything. And, and they were singing, um, opera musicians and, uh, and then I had a science lecture on the biology of pain. And then now we have a performance uh, about K- Mad King George III um, that we start with a lecture about uh, his illness and then he goes into an opera performance afterwards. And it's going to be a, a, an audience that is highly educated uh, and extremely science illiterate, I think. <laughs> so so it's going to be interesting to see how they respond um, to, to this. It,
1: sound, it, it sounds both terrifying and fascinating. So I'm looking forward to seeing more about it online myself. Thank you. Um, I, yeah, I feel like you keep ending these stories and I go, okay, I need now an hour to sit and think about what you've just said and come up with intelligent follow-ups. Because normally it's like, so what did the population dynamic tell you? Well, the population dynamic told us that the wolves are okay. Well, that's good. Let's ask the next logical question. But when you end with opera and body suspension, I feel like I'm just emotionally not prepared as an interviewer. Um,
0: Yeah. It can, it can be a bit, uh, but but we do it in a very very beautiful way. We try to remove all the macabre. But what's re- I I'm so interested in the sort of, um the the feeling of disgust, because I think it's such an interesting uh, emotion in, in humans, and it's often related to our biology. So um, I th- I think that's really really fascinating me. And having these uh, basically hooks in the skin, it basically mm. just really shows us as as the sort of bags of meat and muscle and bone that we actually are. So I think it's interesting from a biological sort of visual viewpoint. So, Well,
1: but- I've, I've, I have seen body <laughs> suspension online. I've never participated. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know that disgust would be the word I use. Confusion, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, in, in all mm-hmm. honesty, I don't get it. And then the empathy or the sympathy kicks in. And I'm like that must really hurt yeah and that kind of leads back to the confusion for me but disgust is surprising yeah but it certainly is a great way to have a conversation about that I mean (laughs) like I I I I want to now just sit and talk about that for the next half hour but (laughs) we've blocked our time so I'll send you an email about it uh and you can send me some studies I will do that all right and I wanted to wrap up by asking, uh, of all things, now we're going to circle back to uh, advocacy and wildlife and podcasts and things. Um, the uh, the best way for people like me, advocates, whether it is the volunteer who works at the Humane Society or someone in my position who is doing this with all of their time or someone who is retired and spends their days uh, trying to advance uh, animal welfare, animal rights. From your perspective as a scientist, what can we, those of us who do not have that scientific background, do better to improve our ability to communicate using science?
0: Oh, that is a tough one. But I think that um, that is really, really tough. I think that... (sighs) contacting scientists and actually have uh, more interviews directly like you know like we're having now <laughs> but uh because you, you often see this um um stories about science being written about very clinically or very uh, very sort of um either it comes from from a very sort of marketing perspective is going, like, oh, look at this new startup uh, producing this great uh, new genetic engineering uh, stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, or you have this um, quite uh, dry, dryly written piece. Um, and I think that to have somebody every so often just going, look at this, because this is so awesome. And then just being really sort of... Um, you can that you can read things and actually feel the enthusiasm of the person because yeah. you, know, you know when you when you read about um movies or about music um you can often feel that through the the words what the author is feeling um and w- why not? Why not science? Because uh, this is how m- most scientists I know, they feel like, like that. They feel, you know, when you discover something new, uh, or when you when you an experiment works out, and you just have the results, and you just see these patterns. I mean, it's amazing. It's like it's describing the world around us. Li- life itself It's like, it's like what can be more cool than that. So and this is what I'm sometimes missing. It's really sort of just a, often reports about things that have happened or you know scientists have now found that if you give rats the you know in that style and and it's it's a bit of a shame that you don't get that sort of personal story about about scientists doing science and finding cool stuff because back in the Victorian days um this was the case and even the sci- even the peer reviewed studies sometimes even included that Somebody's going like, this day was the most amazing day because the liquid suddenly turned clear, you know, Mm -hmm. and then then they described the experiment. So uh, that has sort of gotten lost somehow. And uh, I think it's a bit of a shame.
1: To learn more about Dr. Anna's Imaginarium, find her on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or visit her website at onazacreason.com. That's it for now, folks. I want to thank Dr. Zach Reason for joining me and spending so much time talking about this important issue. I also want to thank all of you for listening and leaving reviews on iTunes for your chance to win a Defender Radio t-shirt. Until next time, I'm Michael Howey for Defender Radio, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.